Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Joseph Boot. Well, welcome back everyone to the podcast for cultural reformation. Uh, this is Worldview Wednesday, and I'm your host today, uh, Joe Boot, and I'm in the studio, as always, with uh, Ryan Eris and Nathan Oblak. And we have a special guest today, which we're very excited about, Professor Jonathan Burnside, uh, who is a fellow of the Ezra Institute, and he'll be telling us a little bit more about himself uh, in just a moment. Last week, we were able to kick off a discussion on biblical law and on the relevance and importance and significance of biblical law. And we gave a sort of general uh, overview of why that might be important. And this week we thought it would be wonderful to, to bring in our fellow for biblical law for the Institute. He teaches uh, uh, for us, has written for us, teaches at the Runner Academy, contributes articles, um, and hear from Jonathan about what he has to say on this subject. This is his specialism and um, we'll get him to uh, tell us um, uh, all about that and a little bit of his own testimony, how he came to that. As we begin, though, I'm just going to quote something that um, uh, Professor Burnside says in his book, God, Justice, and Society, when he's setting up his discussion in this uh, uh, masterful volume, actually, on, on the relevance of biblical law. He says, the study of biblical law will always be relevant no matter what branch of law students enter, and even if they do not go into the law at all. This is because biblical law consciously presents itself as a journey into wisdom. Biblical law aims to teach all who encounter it the essentials of justice. If you allow it to do so, biblical law will make its mark upon you and leave you with a set of attitudes that will profoundly determine how you view life and the world. And uh, at the end of that uh, introduction, he says, uh, if its track record is anything to go by, biblical law will continue to be a source of inspiration and debate when modern legal empires have long been forgotten. And I think it's a fantastic quote. It's a great way in because the Ezra Institute is consistently and constantly talking about worldview, how we view life and the world. And we're particularly interested in how scripture and biblical law shapes our view of life uh, and the world. So, Professor Burnside, uh, Jonathan, welcome. Um, why don't you tell us, Jonathan, just a little bit um, of your own story of how you ended up a professor of biblical law um, eventually at a, at a major university in the UK in the law department and why biblical law means so much to you, not simply theoretically, but in the practical, everyday details of life. Tell us a bit about yourself. Well, um, thank you, Joe. Uh, thank you all for this um, uh, invitation. It's a great um, pleasure and honor to um, be with you. Um, the short answer to your first question is by the grace of God. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose you want a slightly longer one. Um, uh, yes, well, I, um, again, by the grace of God, I became a Christian uh, while I was in the second year of my law degree at uh, King's University. And I well remember, uh, as, as, as just as a part of that experience that you have of um, 
uh, looking at the whole world with new eyes and just sort of trying to, you know, rethink and reorder everything around um, who Jesus is. Um, just walking around the law library and then later the criminology library, um, just ex- looking for all of these books, um, you know, that were going to come flying out of the shelves at me, that were going to explain how the Bible and law and society and everything all fit together. And I well remember um, my surprise and disappointment that those books weren't there. Uh, so that, that was the first thing, because it was obvious to me that um, the Bible um, was concerned with justice uh, and all of these themes about guilt and innocence and forgiveness, and none of these things make sense without law mm. or lawgiver um, or order. Uh, and so really, I think part of the reason why I had all of these questions and I was, I was, and I was motivated to find out answers. So you, have, you start reading and you start digging. And to be honest with you, I've just kept reading and digging ever since to get the answers to the things that I'm interested in. Um, and the fact that you're here having this conversation is, is, is great. Um, but uh, it, it's because the Bible is concerned about these things and therefore we should be too. Um, uh, so... So really, after I uh, graduated, I did degrees in law and criminology, and I joined an organization called the Jubilee Center, which again, providentially, and by the grace of God, was uh, in Cambridge, and I went along to the church. At its founder went to Dr. Michael Schluter, uh, whom um, some of you will uh, know and have met. Uh, and uh, Michael was a very inspiring figure uh, for him in a lot of ways because uh, Michael was just getting on with it. Michael was getting on with the very hard work of political engagement um, from a thoroughgoing biblical perspective. Um, and uh, he uh, had um, done a lot of you know, initial work into thinking about how we would look together. And, and, you know, I always was a political animal. I mean, I was always reading, you know, I mean, it sounds really nerdy, but, you know, hey, I'm a nerd. Uh, I mean, I was always reading the, the, the politics columns in, 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 in the papers, even as a kid. Uh, and, um, and so, you know, I mean, and then the Bible's political. So, I, you know, to, to me, it was that whole rough and tumble just was, was just very, very natural. Um, I didn't mind like a lot of the politics that I saw in Northern Ireland, by the way. Um, but, you know, this was a, a chance of sort of looking much more broadly at the relationship between the Bible uh, and politics outside more traditionally sectarian concerns. Uh, and uh, Michael was very much doing that. And I got involved uh, in a project called Relational Justice, which is looking at how the criminal justice system um, could, be, could be reformed um, by reference to um, Christian ideas, which can only mean biblical ideas. Uh, and that meant digging into obviously what the Hebrew Bible have to say about um, uh, penalties and um, forms of um, seriousness of offence and all that kind of thing. And um, um, I did that for two years. And, you know, we, I mean, in many ways, actually looking at uh, applying the Hebrew Bible to the criminal justice system is like every liberal's nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> but actually... Um, 
we built a very strong coalition of interest, people who supported the project, who were in prisons, probation officers. Um, and then when we finally launched the book in the House of Commons, uh, it was with the then uh, Chief Inspector of Prison, Stephen Tumum, uh, and uh, who later became the Lord Chief Justice, um, Harry Wolf, uh, who was Jewish. So, I mean, at the point is it was possible to draw together a very, very broad coalition uh, on this. And what that showed to me very clearly uh, was that the Bible contained a lot of resources um, for digging trenches and irrigating our public life um, with something that was life-giving. It's life-giving. Um, and, uh, you know, what leads to death is... is um, is um, cutting ourselves off from that uh, source of um, uh, life and, uh, and wisdom. Um, that was probably my project, but in the office next door, um, uh, other staff members were doing the Keep Sunday Special campaign. And uh, in the early 1990s, um, that was all tied up with issues about um, precarious work, um, uh, uh, um, protection for um, um, employees, um, giving people shared family time, shared time off. And when you look at all the issues now, which characterise the labour movement, by concerns about the gig, gig economy, the South and rest, that was a very prescient public campaign uh, around uh, the need for boundaries uh, and uh, the need for protection for workers. Um, again, com uh, commanded very broad public support. And other projects and things like... Um, credit and death and the economy and city bonds and all this kind of stuff. So the point I'm making is that from my point of view, there was never ever really uh, a, a huge debate going on in my head about does it apply, doesn't it apply? Because it's perfectly obvious that it applies. I mean, if you take any text that is, I mean, we're not talking about Shakespeare, but you could be talking about Shakespeare. People are very happy to bring Shakespeare into prisons and have people performing texts about justice or this and that and, you know, this is the quality of mercy and so on and have a debate about it because it's just the text um, that is about those issues and if you are concerned about those issues, you engage with that text. And, you know, you could even on that argument do exactly the same thing with the Bible. Now, the real issue with the Bible is, of course, it is the Bible, so it's normative. Um, and there are all kinds of other reasons we can talk about in terms of um, why it's authoritative. But if you're just talking about the fact that it's relevant, well, I mean, the burden is really on anybody to prove that it's not relevant. Yeah. Of course it's relevant. You're bringing horizons into, um, you know, contact and engagement with each other. Uh, and um, uh, so that's... I, I mean, I mean, one of the questions that was asked um, whenever God Justice Society was published was, um, you know, you know, what what are the fora, um, you know, within which such a work, you know, could be, you know, could conceivably be applied? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, prison reform, workers' rights, the environment, um, you know, the economy, uh, nation states, international law. I mean, I mean, I mean, name me one fora where it is not relevant. Um, so. So I, so I think, so I think the, so the issue for me isn't really that. The issue really me is really is how do you do it well? Right. It's not about application. It's about how do you do the application and how do you do it well? Um, and I think because people have been 
uh, people are feel that they're not equipped on that. They're they're you know quite obviously they're yeah. concerned about um, doing it badly. Nobody wants to do a thing badly, but that's a different that's a different um, debate. We'll be right back. Many Christians are wrestling with how to authentically think and act as a Christian in our culture today. What does it mean to think Christianly about every area of life? Join us this summer at the Runner Academy for an intensive worldview and cultural apologetics training program like no other. Bringing together faculty and delegates from around the world, attendees will learn about the implications of God's Word for every aspect of life, and their calling as God's people to create and cultivate true, godly culture in the public space. This two-week course will take place July 4th to the 17th here at our Ezra Farmstead and Study Centre property in Grimsby, Ontario. This year's speakers include Dr. Joe Boot, Dr. P. Andrew Sandlin, Dr. Peter Jones, Dr. James White, and many more. The program is filling up quickly, so apply today at ezrainstitute.ca. Get equipped with a deep, rich, thoroughly biblical understanding of life and the Christian mission to build a God-honoring culture. That makes sense. It's interesting to, to 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 hear you approach it from that very practical, very down to earth uh, in confronting all of the normal cultural, political, social challenges. To say, well, obviously the Bible is relevant. Now you made a couple of remarks in there, Jonathan. I wanted to just um, just force you a little bit to unpack a tiny bit more. Um, you made you made the statement. Well, the Bible is political. Um, the Bible is political. And uh, you, you, you've, you've kind of said, well, it wasn't a, ever a struggle for me to question whether the, bi- whether the biblical law material is relevant. Now, neither of those two statements are obvious to many modern evangelicals. They, they're obvious to us now, they're around this table, after many years of marinating in this kind of material, including your fantastic work, which, by the way, God, Justice and Society, for our listeners, is Oxford University Press, aspects of law and legality in the bible it's a must read uh the the um the the things that appear obvious to you and clear to you seem almost bizarre and um uh novel to many modern evangelicals the bible is political that's almost heresy in parts of north america to say the bible is political explain to people what you mean by that well and you mentioned the uh the empty library shelves as well i think that speaks to that fact as well well i i think it's interesting that we're you're asking this question uh at this particular moment in time because uh it's uh, passover on uh, saturday and um, this is the Passover. this is the week and the um, the scripture is the week of preparation for Passover. Uh, and um, we think about what happened at Passover. Passover, um, God uh, redeems Israelites from slavery in Egypt. The Exodus happens and they cross through the Exodus and they sing the Song of the Sea in Exodus 15. This is their response to the events of the first Passover. Uh, and if you read that um, poem, Exodus 15, it is political the whole way through it. And they, uh, Moses and the Israelites sing and rejoice and they say, just as God has overthrown Pharaoh, so he uh, will uh, overthrow 
all of the kings of Canaan, um, uh, so that God, um, so that the Lord uh, reigns um, o- over the earth. Um, and and what that is saying is that from now on, there is no such thing. There is no such thing as a return to the old order of doing things. Um, and and that is why God gives part, uh, Torah to the Israelites at Mount Sinai a short while afterwards because they're going in to take all of this land. Um, what are they going to do? Are they just going to do what they saw done in Egypt? No, because that system's over. Are they going to do what they were doing in the Promised Land? No, because that system's over. So God gives them his um, political God, the political scientist, gives them his political order because he reigns. Now, the point is that whole thing is political. Um, And uh, um, obviously at the time coming up to Easter, uh, Christians know that um, the Romans were always keeping a very close eye on Jerusalem at the time because Passover was a political event. It had implications uh, for the existing political orders. And when... uh, uh, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is, of course, the Lord's Passover feast, the Lord's Seder, right? Um, we are remembering a political event. Uh, and Jesus um, reconfigures that political event, completely political event for us, because as soon as you say that Jesus is Lord, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Seder, you're saying that Caesar was not. Right. So we are making these continual Acts of remembrance and storytelling, right? Um, not in the Meghan Markle storytelling sense, but in the biblical storytelling sense. Um, and, um, and, and so we are um, expressing our commitment uh, to a new political order. So how can it not be political? So, Jonathan, when you were here as a faculty member in 2019 for the Runner Academy, a couple of your lectures were on the theme of Torah for the nations. And if you if you think about that phrase for just five seconds, that's a it's a powerful it a phrase. It encompasses a lot, but it also is a, a highly debated point as well. It's a, it's not. It, or it is, I would say, a prevailing mindset amongst a lot of evangelicals that, you know, the law was for ethnic Israel, for national Israel, and that uh, that we are no longer under that same law. It no longer has a, a claim on us. Can you just speak to how that came to be the uh, the dominant mindset, if I, if I'm correct in that assessment? Uh, as to why we've let go of it being, um, would it would it be helpful to explain why the Bible has that as its idea about Torah for the nations? Yes. Would it? Okay. Um, well, um, I think really at the heart of it is is the thing we need to get our, our heads around is the fact that something can be particular but also paradigmatic. Hmm. I mean, something can be a specific example, but it can also it can also be exemplary. Um, uh, so yes, um, Israel is uniquely God's chosen people, and the law is given to her specifically, which is why it's a treasured gift. But 
um, it's in the context of covenant. It's in the context of the Abrahamic covenant, uh, whereby Israel should become a source of blessing to all the nations. So even that very specific calling of one individual uh, and the father of all Jews always had in mind the nations. Um, so it's not surprising then that when Abraham's descendants gather at Sinai to receive Torah, that, that would also have a necessarily international dimension. Um, and that is clearly stated in Exodus 19 in the vocational covenant, because covenants in Bible have a vocation. Um, it's, you know, it's for people to do something and to become something because, um, you know, we're not just serving the gods, but we are being caught up into, you know, almighty God's service um, purposes for, for restoring uh, the world. Um, and, uh, and that vocation is to be a kingdom of priests in the holy nation. And what does a priest do? Well, a priest stands in relation to, uh, between God and the people uh, and speaks blessing to them. The priestly blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you and so on. Um, so Israel being a holy nation and a nation of priests is meant to be standing uh, before God in regard to all the nations of the world, serving all the nations of the world uh, and speaking blessing. Uh, and part of that means um, embodying and in that way holding out the gift of Torah for the nation because as Deuteronomy says, as the nations see your wisdom, uh, they see you obeying all, all, all of these good laws, that will be your wisdom. Uh, that will be wisdom and understanding in the sight of the nations. Um, so, so, so the point is, you know, there were no fancy hermeneutical moves, interpretive moves going on here. Um, it was wisdom for them and could clearly be seen and communicated as such simply by Israel being Israel. Mm -hmm. So right there in Exodus 19, even before you even get to the first word of the Ten Commandments, which, by the way, nobody in the West seriously doubts, um, is of universal application. Uh, um, there, there, there's, your, there's your statement, Torah for the nations. Um, and this is where we start getting into the methodological issues. This is why, you know, you can't really start saying, well, um, I think the Ten Commandments are of universal application, aren't they wonderful? Um, no, no, no trouble asserting that. Um, but the rest of it, that's all really, really particular. There's something to learn from it. Well, it's all part of the same covenant. Right. Um, you know, it's the same God speaking to the same people at the same time. Um, so if you want to say... Uh, that the Ten Commandments are universal, then you've got to say the rest of it, and that argument is, is, is as well. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't even think from a Christian perspective you need to get into that debate, because Jesus tells us what to think about um, anything in, in what we call the Hebrew Bible, which is, um, it's all a word of God. And, you know, uh, and humankind, mankind is to live by every word mm -hmm. um, that comes from the mouth of God. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, so Torah is for nations, Torah is for everybody, because it comes from God. God is the creator of us all. Uh, why do we not believe that today in our churches? Um, because, uh, um, well, I mean, frankly, it's nothing new, is it? I mean, <laughs> there were people who didn't want to receive it at the time, uh, even under Moses. You know, there, you know, there were backlashes and rear guard campaigns underway. Um, in fact, even you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Um, there, there's law and a command, um, you know, don't eat of that tree. 
And the serpent says, did God really say? Mm. So, 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 the, so the questioning of the validity of um, what God commands for our good uh, has been going on since the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, as to why it is um, a more settled part of our, of our worldview, I think we have to take seriously the fact uh, that there has been a very wholesale um, debunking and trashing um, of the not only the Hebrew Bible, but of biblical law in particular. Um, I mean, in fact, you, in fact you, could, you could break it down a little bit and say, well, um, uh, of all the religious books in the world, none has been the focus of more sustained attack than the Bible. Um, if you look at the Bible, the bit that's probably um, the least popular to talk about in public square, um, if you are going to be in the Bible in public square, is the Old Testament. And then if you're going to talk about which bit of the Old Testament is the most difficult to talk about, well, you probably have to say it's, it's Torah, it's, it's, it's biblical law. And it's very interesting when you go back and look at the start um, of the whole um, biblical uh, uh, criticism movement uh, in Germany uh, in the early 19th century. Where did it all start? The focus was the Pentateuch. Pentateuch was the start of it, yeah. uh, and and people like Marx, Karl Marx, and Frederick Engels, who went along uh, to some of these lectures in Berlin uh, from some of these early biblical scholars, um, influenced as they were um, uh, um, uh, and um, and and they. Um, uh, seized on those tools um, with great alacrity um, because it was the means of attacking ideas about justice and law and the order of society. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where the rot started. Um, and I think that that's because I think that because that's where the rot started, um, it's no wonder that we have such a low view of biblical law and its contemporary application. In that sense, we're all cultural Marxists, mm-hmm. um, in the sense that we think that biblical law was bad. We're all cultural Marxists. Uh, and, and, and that's actually quite a self-serving position. It works for a lot of people. It's popular um, because it works very well for the state um, because there's no transcendence there's no independent basis on which the state can effectively be challenged. Mm-hmm. There isn't an objective order to appeal to. Mm-hmm. Um, so it gets the state off the hook, and it gets the church off the hook as well, because we don't have to bother with that business, the whole business about um, engaging with politics, critiquing the, the state. Um, you know, we can just get on with our Disney-fied lives, mm-hmm. um, having fun, and, um, you know, doing spiritual things. Yeah. Mm. So... Uh, Professor Burnside, I mean, these are these are some sobering words to hear, uh, and I I think they're very true. Uh, do you do you think we we are able to turn this around in the West? Can we reverse this cultural societal rot you're describing? Well, I think. Well, I think to be honest with you, I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, I, I'm painting in very very. I'm 
summarizing hundreds of years of trends in, 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 a, in, a, in a couple of very broad, primary, colorful, broad strokes. I mean, the reality is that um, uh, Christians in every age have been engaged. They have been engaged politically and culturally. Um, and uh, when we look back on those periods, um, we are uh, truly grateful that they, that, that they were, and, and we can all think of examples um, from uh, a great range of denominations uh, and um, different parts of the world. But you see, if we ask the question, well, what do they have in common? Well, what they have in common is, is that they went to Scripture um, for the source of their convictions. Mm-hmm. I mean, they did it in very, very different ways. Um, and I, I would maintain that there are a lot of different ways in which you could argue for the contemporary application relevance of biblical law. Um, uh, and when you look at how people have engaged with it historically, um, and you look at, you try to reconstruct their political theology, if you like, there, not that they would have called it that at the time, but but just their reasons for why they think it all works and the case that they're making for their contemporaries. I mean, I mean something like King Alfred the Great, I mean, he welds um, biblical law to Anglo-Saxon existing codified, existing Anglo-Saxon law, which he codified uh, in the 8th century, remarkably. And he sets out an extended justification as to how he thinks all of these things fit together. And it's all very, you know... um, Counselor, and it's all about making appeals to different sorts of synodal authorities, and his witan and his you know grouping and all this kind of stuff. And that's the way in which he fits it, fits it together. Um, and you know, somebody at another time, different place, would make the argument very differently. But um, you know, there are a range of compelling reasons that we can give for engaging political um, uh, engagement. Uh, and, and my point is that people have always done that, um, even in very difficult and challenging circumstances. So when you ask the question, uh, Nathan, how do we turn this around? Um, I just think, well, this isn't really anything new because it's always been under attack, as I've said. Um, there's always been that choice to disengage, um, but there's also always been the, uh, the choice to um, uh, make the connection and I, mean, I think of somebody like Alfred, you know, who had his back to the wall, probably, you know, um, in, in a very extreme way politically. You know, half the country being overrun uh, and um, by invaders, and very few, very very few intellectual resources. Uh, and yet, uh, when he radically made that choice to ground his. Uh, kingship on the Bible, God honoured that. Um, and I think that um, uh, this sort of loops back into that little quote that um, Joe gave earlier on um, about um, biblical law being relevant. Um, we never really have to make the case for it being relevant because it's always relevant because it's God speaking. You know, um, uh, and, you know, God's word is always alive. Uh, it always... Um, Irrigates the earth when it comes from heaven and, and returns having fulfilled its purpose. Um, so, uh, um, so I think, so I, I think it's it's just um, how do we turn it around? Um, we turn it around uh, by always going back to scripture, um, uh, owning uh, 
the truth that God is for us and not against us. And I think that when we paint biblical law in black colours, um, we've got this sort of idea that somehow God doesn't want what's best for us. And uh, that, that is not a Christian perspective. Well, that's all we've got time for for today. We'll leave it there. But we want to give uh, Professor Burnside a really big thank you. Professor Burnside is a, a wonderful friend of the Institute, fellow of biblical law. Uh, we've known him for many years now. Uh, he's written for us. He's taught for us here. And I've had the privilege of working with uh, Jonathan in England as well. This has been an f- absolutely fascinating start to this. But we want to do a bit more. So we're going to be back next week with Professor Burnside for more on this uh, exciting issue of the relevance and power and application of biblical law. So this has been the podcast for Cultural Reformation, reminding you that from him and through him and to him are all things. It's passed down as a prophecy Every year about this time